catalyst, but it's a catalyst not because of the economics. It's a catalyst because peeps be done gone crazy. And when peeps be done gone crazy, that's irrational. An official quote. Peeps be gone crazy. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Kicking off the year in style, my friend. Kicking off the year in style. It's great to be here. This so is good. Uh, the episode where Dougals hyperventilates with the excitement over his new equity purchases. Mm-hmm. I got Beyonce in my ears. <laughs> which Which song? <laughs> <laughs> annual review make me lose my breath annual review make me lose my breath uh, uh, okay. you know what i mean did you did you have books in the background before uh that new? i've upgraded the office check out this i got a tree here too the tree m- made the move from the shed is, is that, is that is, is that the same tree it's the same tree yeah oh my goodness that tree it's great wow wow now i'm building things out i got a picture over here it's, it's good stuff <laughs> this is but that makes me uncomfortable to talk about my office. So I, I want to talk about how, like, I do lots of stupid things, Dougals. I True. Mean, let's just, but I don't think I've done something this stupid, at least in this year. Did you read the article about rookie traders calling it quits from the Wall Street <laughs> Journal, where there's one dude that had a portfolio of $2,000 and he was spending six and a half hours a day researching and trading stock picks with it? Yes, I did. I did. And hold on. Having a $2,000 portfolio. Cool. Like, get cool. yourself going, Nothing wrong right? with that. Yeah, nothing yeah. wrong with that. <laughs> it's the hourly rate that we're discussing here. The ROI yeah, so of the, time. The hourly rate, assuming that he actually kept the $2,000, which I'll cut to the chase. He lost the $2,000. That's what happens when you day trade, is zero cents per hour but it, it yeah if he kept the two thousand dollars he would have been making about 60 cents an hour by my calculations man there's a lot of jobs you could get even those minimum wage jobs that pay more than 60 cents an hour before i even read this i hadn't thought about this until now but before i even read this i think you know that there's a there's another brokerage that i've been like i have a small amount of money in that i was testing because i want to see what their reporting and stuff looks like sure so i had a small amount of money and at some point, like in early December, I was like, you know what I'm going to do in 2023 just for fun is every day I'm going to have to say I'm going to buy something new and I want to see what happens. And then like a few hours later, I went, why? Like, like why? Why would I do this? I would have been this person, though. Like this, the, the dumbest, this. Yeah, it's literally the dumbest <laughs> thing you could possibly do. I'm so happy you came clean on that. That's uh, speaking of stupid stuff. I had a moment this week where. I somehow, you know, this was like a few hours where I somehow thought if I bought an electric SUV, like my life would be better and I'd be happier. And then <laughs> I very quickly like threw cold water on my head and was like, I don't need that at all. No. Um, no. That'd be a huge waste of money. This is what happens when when there's access to so much content, I think, is that yeah, you, oh, you just have stuff coming at you and you're like, yeah, that sounds like a, wait, what? Like, wh- Why? Why? And the know. brain messes with you. Like yes. our brain is hardwired for things, whether it's the status and culture book by our boy, David Marks, or like the hunter gatherer uh, mentality, taking over and protecting you from 
you know, what used to be bears jumping out of bushes and we don't have to deal with that anymore. Like <laughs> your brain messes with you. Okay. Uh, let me get back on track. We were guests on the Seafair Investor podcast this week, episode 29. If you're interested specifically in our investing styles and some thoughts on personal finance that we don't always get into on this show, go check that out. It's really fun. It's with our boy in the Philippines. Great time. We had tons of fun. Really appreciate him having us on the show. But episode 29 of the Seafair Investor podcast. So go check that out if you're interested. The other thing is please hit us with a review. Um, that helps more people find the show. So if you haven't done that, we'd really appreciate it if you do. Today's episode is a little unique. Dougal's mentioned it. It's the first episode of the year. This is when we do our yearly portfolio rebalances. That's for the Alta Premium members. And uh, so they'll get hit with that information later in the show. The rest of you, the non-premium subscribers, will get a year in review once we wrap up here. Right, Dougal's? Yeah, well, we're going to take some of our most popular segments from the year, put them together so you can go back and re-enjoy some of the greatness. I'm going to call it greatness because we all know, but some of the greatness uh, from this year. So we'll put that together for folks that don't have the the top end ultra. Was I roll with Skippy and Dougal's? Yeah, that's uh, the premium yeah, premium. The premium premium. But the premium premiums, as you mentioned, they're going to get our our annual review, how we did last year what that means for you know maybe a few years back and what we're rebalancing to this year what we're picking up what we're picking exactly. up it's very exciting uh, it's like it's, this I is mean, my real holiday like let's be honest let's be honest uh do i have to tease the iowa based rv and marine products company that i bought yesterday go on <laughs> now it's it's for the premium <laughs> premium baby can't tell you about it <laughs> oh my goodness all right, a couple more quick hits uh, before we we take that detour into the portfolio stuff. Diggles, did you see Salesforce's laying off 10% of their workforce? I did. I did. My point here is a high-level one, literally four words. Business strategy is hard. I think I talked about it on the show. In February of this year, Salesforce bought this elaborate, it's in Northern California, like this old... Um, college that had basically gone bankrupt. I think it's like 45 or 70 acres and turned this into a retreat space. And I thought this was the coolest thing ever. Basically, they said, we're going to have less people in the office. Um, so because of that, we're shifting our resources to like almost a resort where teams can come together, hopefully twice a year and like spend, do some in-person time. They were really thoughtful about how they crafted this place. There's no TVs in it. There's like hikes and everything. Yeah, Dougal's freaked out with the no TVs. It, it's like this connection to nature and the ability to connect to your, uh, your colleagues. Now, they didn't put a price out on how much they spent on this thing, but let's just say likely hundreds of millions. Well, at least tens of millions approaching 100 million. You solid would guess. amount. Definitely a solid I mean, amount. Yep. And then 10 months later, they lay off 10% of their workforce. Like this stuff is so hard. And the best companies, a lot of people, there's a lot of admiration for Salesforce out there because what they've done over the past two decades is incredible. They messed this up. Yeah, it's it's a rough year for them as well because you got the layoffs that are happening right now. And then you go back a month and Stuart Butterfield, which was the, the uh, CEO, co-founder of Slack, right, left. 
their co-CEO, Brett Taylor, left. Like, yep. this is rough. It's a rough time. And I'm sure yep. Benioff, Mark Benioff, the co-founder or founder uh, and CEO of, you know, for so long now, he was probably like thinking about exit. Like, how do I like, you know, he, he yeah. brought on a co-CEO, like yep. he probably had a couple more years and then was going to uh, sail off into the sunset and do his philanthropy stuff or whatever else he wanted to do. And now like it's, that's hard. This is like a really this, hard time to start thinking about that. So this brings me back to Bezos because he's like the only one in recent memory that really went out on top. <laughs> yeah. Like everything was humming for Amazon and he's like, peace. And I think to your point, Benny Huff might have had a similar idea and now 2022 happens and he might be in it for another five years because he doesn't want to go out with this turmoil at the top you mentioned and then the stock price pulling back and layoffs. It, it just, exactly. it's not as much fun as it used to for, be. For Salesforce, it literally was the 20 deuce deuce. <laughs> you can't, I mean. <laughs> That's it. We're out, we're out of the year now. So I'm, I'm done. I'm done with it. Oh, my. <laughs> It's rough. Uh, all right. Anything in your quick fishbowl before we dive in to the uh, rebalance conversation? This is a very quick hit. Nothing to even talk about it. But it it just going back to ridiculousness of human beings. There there was an individual who allegedly, because we haven't gone through <laughs> Alleged. the the, <laughs> the trial and all that whatnot, but allegedly he stole about $300,000 from Zulily, which was their company. Uh, he was a, an engineer at Zulily and was inspired by uh, the movie Office Space from about 20 plus years ago, right? In Office Space, they had this scheme to take like a penny here, a penny there over time, and they become rich over time, but they ended up taking like lots of dollars because they messed up their algorithm. Anyway, yeah, this person yep. was inspired by the movie Office Space, ridiculous point number one. Well, who hasn't been inspired by Office Space, to be honest? I mean, yeah, yeah. But then you just don't execute. So yeah. then went to go execute. Allegedly got about $300,000, got caught. And then the best part of this whole thing is, so you're going to embezzle this $300,000 and you go, oh, okay, well, I got $300,000. I got caught. That is what it is. Unless you then <laughs> bet all of that $300,000 on GameStop and lose it. Which is, is allegedly what happened here. Which allegedly, which is allegedly <laughs> what occurred here. I just, <laughs> humanity, that's it. That's all. I'm just going to wrap it with the word humanity. Okay, so I just, I, we need to get this guy on the show, I think. No. Because. Mm, nope. Well, <laughs> no, not to make him a celebrity, but so what's the idea here you get the three hundred thousand dollars hopefully that's a decent chunk of change you know maybe you can buy a house or something with that depending on where you live in the states why do you then need to try and gamble it some more i don't i don't know that i follow you know i think maybe like you just you get the little bit of taste of that sweet nectar it's a little bit it's stale nectar but you get a little bit of taste of that stale nectar and want to keep going i don't know like it doesn't it just does just doesn't make any sense yeah, I, like I don't know this. The whole thing doesn't make a lot of sense, but anyway, had to mention that humanity. No, but exactly to your point, I think especially as uh, younger adults or even teenagers, we watched that movie and was like, ah, this is pretty cool and it's entertaining, but no one actually executed on it. You know, <laughs> like, no. 
No one like, says I'm stealing from my employer. <laughs> <laughs> That's where things get a little crazy here. Yeah, it, it does. It does. So, and it, especially you have to go in in a year when companies across the board are trying to figure out how to save money. Like, is that the time where you go? They won't notice. Like, they're, they're well, not going to notice that. And like, on top of that, like, the, uh, what is what is going on at Zulily here? Where how does an engineer even have the ability to steal fun? Well, you know, like there should be yeah. some things well, that are gated. So what what he did, allegedly, sorry, allegedly, <laughs> what, what what he did was, and you could see when an engineer could do this. He went in and changed the prices on products. Yeah, and then bought them for like pennies on the dollar. So you could see where like an engineer would have access to change prices on the site. So like he changed something from I'm making this up of like from one dollar to two cents, buy a whole bunch of it, it got delivered, then he could resell it. Like that yeah. that was the scheme. No, but that was only that. one part of his scheme. He had another thing with the personal stripe account. Yeah, that where is true. He that was sending some funds. And that, that seems that's just legit. Interesting to me. Um yeah. okay, so long story like back in one of my first internships, this company sold like security software. This was back when antivirus software mattered. And my job as the intern was to test the shopping cart, basically, to make sure it worked on all different browsers and that the purchase experience was smooth and streamlined. Yep. But the amazing thing I learned then, which I'm sure is still the case today, is there are like these fake credit card numbers that you can use just for testing purposes. And uh, that always baffled me because they actually go out to like the Visa or the MasterCard and you get the full authorization and everything. And it, but it, it like, so as an intern, I was doing thousands of transactions a month, probably, but they were all fake transactions. It makes me wonder if there's some loophole there. Probably not. Who knows? But I, I think generally there, uh, people just believe that for the most part, people are good, which is true, I think. Yeah, right. and and then you get people that are inspired by twenty-year-old movies, <laughs> which, for the record, if I remember, I, I might get this a little wrong, but I feel like in Office Space they were inspired by Superman two or something like that. I feel like that, like they stole their idea from a movie, and so this is like a second or third order <laughs> alleged fraud. So, all right, okay, like we can we can move on. We can move on. Are All we going right. to fork now? Is this fork time? We're going to fork. We're going to fork. Enjoy the year in review, guys. Thanks so much for being uh, part of the show. We love your contributions, whether they're uh, via listener mail, helping support the show financially, or just listening and being a part of it with us. So enjoy, and we'll fork. To hear the full episode where Skippy and I discuss what we're buying for this upcoming year, the 2023 trading season, please go to skippydoogles.supercast.com and sign up for the I Roll with Skippy and Doogles premium subscription. That's a top premium subscription. Otherwise, what we're going to have for the rest of this episode are what you told us were your favorite clips from 2022. Enjoy. Can you drop a, a soundbite for me about Europe? Oh, oh, joy to the world, I tell you. Oh, my goodness. When you sent this thing across to me this week, this is everything that is wrong with bubbles. Whether or not we're in one, question mark, not question mark. I just want to listen. Just listen to this clip. Listen to this clip. Europe, always a nightmare to do business.
America's the only game in town. It's just us. You want to put a million dollars to work? You're going to buy a bunch of European companies? Why? Why? When you could buy Apple, you buy Disney, buy Netflix, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Nvidia, Tesla. Tesla, the king. It's the only game in town. Tesla, the king. I can't, I can't handle it. <laughs> How did he attempt to say Nvidia? Did he say like? I think Nvidia? he just said Nvidia. Like, <laughs> I think he. I think he had to go in for fractional shares because couldn't get the whole share. So like the, the <laughs> end. Did he get the end on the yeah, front? The, the, the end was dropped. I mean. Like, uh... <laughs> It's a it's also the like a if you if you just hear the tone of this video and just see it, you would not be thinking about he's talking about what he's talking about. Like he, he says this as if it's like as, absolute gospel here. Like you can't why? nowhere why? else in the world can you make money. And it doesn't matter that the US stock market is the second most expensive <laughs> in the world and places like the UK are dirt cheap and primed to outperform. I mean, because according to Dougal's hogwash, mean reversion doesn't exist. So yeah, <laughs> but like the thing, the tone in that is so interesting, like, and this conviction, wh how, why? Like, why would we be the only place on earth that's allowed to make money? Does that make any sense? <laughs> I mean, it, it does from like an ethnocentric, like America, America, America view, but it it is, the questions you just raised like is what what gets to me it's as if he sees someone he sees someone that's about to purchase a value stock not in the u.s and he goes whoa did you know you could buy apple tesla Amazon. tesla tesla, wait, tesla. Wait, wait wait i can it's like like they, they didn't know like they only realized that they could get into uk grocery stores you know like that, that that's that's all they thought they were like oh tesco no tesla you know what i mean like, yeah oh okay Oh, okay. just put an A on the end. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, like, yeah, I mean, does he know? I, I'm just going to ask a, a question or two. Like, does he know that the Japan stock market was, like, 44% of the world market capitalization in 1989? And that did not mean that Japan was the only place to invest for the rest of your life? Like, that was a good time to invest in America. If you ended that question with, does he know? I'd go, no. <laughs> Like no, no matter what else, this, this takes us back. Remember the clip that we played a few months ago with the guy that was talking about upstart and they said, yeah. what do they do for, and these, if you, if you go to, I'd say maybe I don't, I'm not going to go as far as say the average American. Cause I don't know, but probably the average American, at least the average investor and ask what these companies do. They probably know if you go to him and go, <laughs> what does Tesla do? He'd probably be like, uh, I'm you're breaking up. I think I'm having audio issues. It, it, this is this is dangerous, like just dangerous. Can we talk about Stanley Drunkenmiller and his article with uh, John Collison? Oh, the interview? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. So we're bad at this because we're both investing nerds. If you don't know who Stanley Drunkenmiller is, here's my blurb. Over more than four decades in investing, Drunken Miller has never recorded a down year. His fund even notched a return of a plus 11% in 2018. 
And during one stretch, he compounded his assets at 30% plus per year for 30 straight years. His net worth is north of $5 billion. This is from The Hustle. This is uh, from 2021. So pretty smart dude, huh, Diggles? Do you think we should listen to what he has to say? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a way, like a wide range of different environments. You said 40 years. I think 45 years is how long he's been a chief investment officer. You've seen some things. You've been through many oh, environments. Yeah. Yep. And he, he has background kind of like me. He, he started in banking. So, of course, I like him. Now, this interview, yeah, I said article, but I meant interview. It's a YouTube video. You can go to at Collison and uh, pull it up. It is from June 10th. So wide ranging. Like just if you have an hour and you're interested in investing, just listen to it because John Collison, who's the founder of Stripe, is just ask really insightful questions. There's two things that I found really interesting. The first is something that Drunken Miller always talks about. Actually, there's three. The first is that if he was making a prediction and he's wise to say, I'm not making a prediction, prediction, predictions are dumb. He would say the pain is going to continue and we're going down significantly more than we are down today. Um, I think he mentioned as much as 50% more. So thoughts on that, Douglas? I do have a thought on that. And, but one of my thoughts has to do with something else he said related to that. And I don't yeah. want to steal your thunder. Yeah. So no, go for um, it. Well, so one, it's interesting because I love that you brought up the fact that he said, this is not a prediction, but if I were to say what I think, because it relates to the fact that while he believes that as the case, he also said that he's not shorting equities right now, at least not in a material yeah. way. And what, what he said was that he would wait for a 15 to 20% rally potentially, or he didn't say it. He said, I'm going to see if there's like a 15 to 20% rally. And then that's when I might get interested again. And I, I thought that that was really interesting. So that was my, my perfect. No, you actually, you're, you're helping me articulate this. So the actual quotes relating to this is there won't be a soft landing and a high probability that the bear continues down. He he thinks, and this is almost proven by current valuation methods, that the mean reversion will continue. And those are my words, not his. When they talk specifically about inflation, he dropped a factoid that I've never heard that is incredibly interested. He said, when inflation gets over 5% in the US, um, it's never gotten under control until... Short term, basically, the Fed fund rate goes above CPI, which means the Fed fund rate has significant movement because CPI is currently eight to nine percent. The Fed fund rate was just raised this week, but what is it, Dougals? It's in the one and a half percent range, yeah, something like that. So, like, and, and the C- those, CPI being inflation, yeah, 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 yeah. Th- those two things need to converge. So, not only does CPI have to come down significantly, but likely the Fed funds rate has to go up significantly. The ramifications of that are significant because all debt gets significantly more expensive. That probably ground, uh, that probably creates an environment where we hit a recession very soon, um, simply because you can't raise the Fed funds rate that quickly without severe ramifications. We'll talk about maybe later in the show. Uh, what's happening in the U.S. housing and mortgage market and why there's significant impact to that through the rest of the economy. 
And what's interesting to me here, one of there's so there's like everything is interesting, honestly, to me in here. But one thing I bring up is that there's so much we've talked about this, I think probably mostly off pod, but we've talked about the fact that there's so much that relies upon earnings over the next few quarters right now. Like I, I think that that's what that's one of the the key factors, one that drives the market over time. So what I'm about to say is not like rocket science, but as of right now, I think so much hinges on that because in one world, you could say that prices have dropped enough to make it so that the price, if you just look at this one valuation measure, the price to earnings ratio has gotten like reasonable, like reasonable-ish. It's not wild anymore, right? That's like one way you could look at it. However, that's forward-looking. However, if you say that, which this often happens in circumstances like this, the forward-looking earnings predictions are wrong yeah, and earnings come in, come in lower, then we could be just as overvalued as we were 20% ago, yep. right? And, and so they're watching earnings is going to be pretty critical to see what happens over the next two or three earnings cycles. Do they hit as they have been? Do they hit expectations? Do they fall below expectations? And what is the outlook also of the companies at that point when they announce earnings? There's so much that relies upon that. But I, I, I love this part of the conversation that he had with Carlson. You don't seem to like what I just said, though. You don't seem to like it. Well, I mean, I, I think you just know I hate projections. And like, I think that's a, a fair take. I don't I want to say I disagree with it. But you said if you look at this one metric, well, when you look at 10 metrics, Price to earnings is the only one that looks reasonable-ish. Everything else still looks like we're in a crazy bubble. So I just would look broader than one metric. I also agree with looking broader than one metric, but I don't think I've seen enough that says that everything else looks like we're in a crazy bubble. Okay. I'll, I'll uh, yeah, we'll, let's, let's change some yeah, text. Yeah, we'll we talk will. about it we next will. week. Okay. If we go back to Drunken Miller, there's two other things you said that are just good. Collison talks about, Hey, you know what? I've heard your performance is really just that you outwork everybody, that you work crazy hard. And he says, you know what? That's true. But I think passion equals hard work. And I'm really passionate about investing. So that's what I want to do when I wake up on a Saturday morning. And that's what I want to do on a Sunday night. And like, um, I just think that gets overlooked. That's not an investing point at all. But people, if you find something you're passionate about, and can do it where it doesn't feel like work, you're going to enjoy your job more. It's a huge life hack if we're, I mean, if we're calling it that. I, I just, it's worth calling out. Yeah, agreed. And in the, in the investment world, I mean, part of what he was saying is it takes so much effort and scrutiny and rigor to do what he's done, right? Like that's where like the time investment is material. You're reading through all this stuff and uh, injecting it into your brain and trying to figure out what the heck it means. Like it just takes a heck of a lot of time. Cause he's not, he's not looking at something on a whim and just saying, Oh yeah, let's just see, let's throw the spaghetti at the wall and see what happens. He makes big bets, right. That are very well researched. Um, but I got to jump in there. One thing yeah. he said, which is so fascinating. He has a whole team of analysts working for him. Yep. And he said, it's so crazy competitive right now that he, sometimes he gets pitched something. And he was already maybe bullish on that industry or that stock. And it's like a lunch meeting. He goes back to his desk, 
throws hundreds of millions of dollars into this thing. Now his portfolio is massive. So hundreds of millions of dollars is a lot of money, but not like it would be for your average person. And uh, then goes back to the analyst and says, I took a position. I want you to, to do more rigor. And he'll decide if he either continues to add to that position or jumps out two or three weeks later. But he said, it's so competitive that sometimes he sees other people uh, realize that story within the next two to three weeks. And that's the biggest move of the stock. What's funny about that selfishly is, listen, I'm not comparing myself to Stanley Drunken Miller, but I've found myself doing that a little more in terms of, oh, I think this is, I think this is actually, there's actually something here. I might jump in with a small position and continue to formally dive into the 10K and do those other things. And then usually you can jump out if you were wrong without much of a loss. But if you jump in, you might get that big gain early. I definitely see that. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And it's a taking this without a lot of nuance in it for the average investor is dangerous. Oh, yeah, to to be honest. But but I agree with you because it's a but like there are the cases where I might see something and say this price over the long term, I know isn't bad. Like, I know that I don't know that it's the right price. I don't know this is exactly the right time, but it's not bad over the long term. Like I'm my long term. Right in there. So, but I, I agree. So, like, take a little bit. It probably usually for me, it won't be my full allocation. Like, I'll have more than I'm willing to allocate to whatever that thing is. But yeah, I agree. I thought this part was fascinating too. I took a note down there of like trading before the research. And then there's like deep, deep research that happens to either um, mm-hmm. get to two or three weeks later, like whether he exits the position then, yep. which he says is not much of a loss usually, or doubles down or, or continues to ride it. So, but that was really fascinating. One other thing I thought was, yeah. oh, sorry. One other thing well, I no, was interesting. to hammer on that point, like you made a great thing. I always say this with Buffett, Drunken Miller is basically the same. Like the, this is kind of like listening to Michael Jordan tell you how to dunk from a free throw line and being like, okay, I'm going to go do that. No, these guys are like the best to ever do it. Right. So just because they ha- say something, it can be intellectually fascinating. It's probably almost never a good idea for your typical retail investor. So sorry to hammer that point home. You, I agree with you. Great point. One other thing I love that he said is when you're cold, the last thing you want to do is make big bets to get back to even. Even for Michael Jordan, the Michael Jordan, one of the Michael Jordans of uh, Michael Jordan would never say that, though. Michael Jordan would be like, well, I'm yeah. cold. I've never I'm been cold, cold, so I wouldn't know. Um, but that goes to your Tim Ferriss thing from a couple of weeks back where you're going, hey, if you lose money, think about trying to make it back in a different way than you lost it. And think about trying to make it back with a different time frame you know, a much longer time frame than just being like, oh, I was at the blackjack table. I lost it. I'm going back to the blackjack table uh, to make it back because you're this is not going to happen. Precisely. This is a phenomenal interview. Wide ranging conversation hits on multi decades of views. Thoroughly recommended. Can I Let's, dip into some yeah. brilliance? All right. So for those of you that don't like to read investor memos, I'm going to summarize one for you. And that's nearly all of you, by the way, I'm pretty sure. Howard Marks can put pen to paper in such a phenomenal way. And uh, I'm glad you turned me on to Howard Marks. Actually, I'm very thankful for that. And I just really enjoy reading his memos. So this one from September uh, 2022 is titled Illusion of Knowledge. And this is 
like I think you probably called Mr. Marks and told him to write this because of how much you don't like forecasting. This whole piece is about forecasts and nonsense. But I'm going to end this. I'm going to give some summary hits from this. And then I'm going to end it with a question for you. A contrarian, controversial question for you. It might even be a question with a period at the end. Here are a few quotes. Forecasters have no choice but to base their judgments on models, be they complex or informal, mathematical or intuitive. Models, by definition, consist of assumptions. If A happens, then B will happen. In other words, relationships and responses, right? So what what he's saying is, if you're a forecaster, you need something to say what you should forecast. They build these models. Bottles have a bunch of assumptions, say, if this happens, that happens. What that then leads to is you have a whole suite of assumptions that are basically multiplicative. Like you need all six of these things to occur. If one of them is different, then your forecast kind of goes off. And it's impossible really to know whether or not A, B, C, and D are all going to happen. One of my favorite quotes is um, when someone presents a forecast to you, you say, what assumptions in your model are required to make that happen? And often, the, this happens in boardrooms for me, right? Often, the person starts talking through their assumptions. And not only do you realize that there's a lot of rosy stuff in there, but you also realize that, like you're saying, it goes six deep. And then you you reframe, you ask yourself the question, like, what is the likelihood that all six of those things happen? And you quickly realize that forecast is junk. It's just how it works. It's just how it works. Fair. Fair enough. All right, here's another one. How can a model of an economy be comprehensive enough to deal with things that haven't been seen before or haven't been seen in modern times, meaning under comparable circumstances? This is yet another example of why models simply can't replicate something as complex as an economy. I I really love that point around how do you deal with things that haven't been seen before or haven't been seen in like in this environment. Like I I really like that one a lot. We just talked about it last week. The the quote the the guy being like we've never raised interest rates 75 basis points a time into a recession. You know, like yep. we've never been here before. So how does your model handle this it can't yeah. all right i've got four more and then then i'm gonna i'm gonna spit out my my nonsense all right i imagine that for most money managers the process goes like this i predict the economy will do a if a happens interest rates should do b with interest rates of b the stock market should do c under that environment the best performing sector should be d and stock e should rise the most the portfolio expected to do best under that scenario is then assembled <laughs> like when you read it that plainly then go oh okay that's i'm not investing in that um all right the next one uh and so th- this one he's actually quoting somebody else someone an english writer named gk chesterton and this is from chesterton's piece that he used or sorry a chesterton quote that he used in a previous memo called risk revisited again the real trouble with this world of ours is not that it's an unreasonable world, nor even that it's a reasonable one. The commonest kind of trouble is that it is nearly reasonable, but not quite. <laughs> that I love so much. I'll give you my my like reframe of that is that the the model, if you look at this in model terms, and your model is fully logical, let's just say, like it follows this logical trend. And he's saying the problem isn't that that the world says that logic isn't right. And it's not that the world says that logic's right. It says that it's like basically right, 
but it's 10% off right there. And yeah. if you're 10% off there, then everything, like anything else could happen because of the randomness that exists in the world. I just, I really love that, that, that part. It's not that it's unreasonable. It's not that it's reasonable. It's that it's nearly reasonable. <laughs> and like, I think that that is, that is the problem. Yeah. I just got to jump in there uh, with a really important point. Uh, GK Chesterton is my name when I go to the club and I have to conceal my identity. <laughs> I I feel like the uh, Mr. Moneybags from Monopoly and GK Chesterton. <laughs> yeah, are buds. <laughs> like, They're yeah, like they, hanging out. They love hitting the club. <laughs> GK Chester GK Chesterton is an all timer. That is a great name. It's Holy phenomenal. Cow. It's phenomenal. I'll read anything that you write if that's your name. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I'm buying some books today by Mr. Chesterton. <laughs> all right. I actually have one more. I thought I thought it was two more. One more. As I mentioned in my recent memo, thinking about macro, in the 1970s, we used to describe an economist as, quote, a portfolio manager who never marks to market. <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> in other words, economists make forecasts. Events prove them either right or wrong. They go on to make new forecasts, but they don't keep track of how often they get they get it right. It's like, yeah. it's, it's so, so good. Um, I love that fact. So, all right. What he's saying here through all this. Forecasts rarely come true. And if they do, it's by chance, right? Forecasting can be dangerous because people bet so much on them. Now, Skippy, are you ready for this? Yes. Aren't we all forecasting, though? I think what's being said here is that it's the precision of a forecast that is nonsensical. Not that you're forecasting, because even when you talk about mean reversion, you're forecasting that the economy of the United States doesn't fall apart. Like you're forecasting that this company doesn't go bankrupt. You're forecasting. And, but like, that's a, it's a directional forecast versus a precise forecast. And I don't feel like that's talked about that. Like we all are forecasting. Howard Marks buys a lot of distressed debt. And that's a mm -hmm. lot of where the investing comes from. There's a forecast that's being made when that, when that debt is purchased. It's just not like a, here are my six assumptions that have to all come true perfectly. And this is the price necessarily fully there, but there's, there's some directional forecast. I'll pause. I mean, I love the thought process and generally agree, but Howard Marks, me, hopefully others are making probabilistic bets based on current valuations, right? And beliefs in the future. It, sure. But the forecast that he's, uh, crapping on here, if I'm allowed to say that on the pod, is the economist that says interest rates are going to be X at the end of 2022, or the value of the S&P 500 is going to be X at this period in time. Or that, remember that we joked about the Dow's 36,000 book that came out 20 years ago. Like It's that level of precision to, to say... We even mentioned it last week. I said, I'm really excited about some stock picks of mine. But the thing that's tough is when my normal turnaround might take 18, 12, 18 months to get to what I think is true value in this environment, I think it's going to take three years. And that's kind of a pain. I don't control that time horizon at all. I don't control, control when things mean revert. So I guess I don't think of that specifically as a forecast. And I don't think Mr. Marks does either. But I know what you're saying, and it's very true. There's, it's, that's what's so hard about investing, and especially 
investing recommendations and advice. It comes across as contradictory because it's like no one can know the future except you should buy this stock at this point in time because it's going to be worth more money in the future. I may be the only one, so bear with me. But as I was reading this book, I was going, this book should be condensed a little and given as a manual for middle school. And I'm going to assume you had the typical American (laughs) middle school experience. For me, middle school was the first time that brands mattered, um, that how you looked mattered, that how you acted seemed to matter. Elementary school was about who you're friends with, who you like. And middle school seems like it just is a wash with all these new ideas of effectively status and culture. I'm curious if it, if you've ever thought about that, if anyone's ever brought that up to you and maybe why you think that our judgment or our fundamental desire to fit in happens right around middle school age for your average American. And maybe it's your average individual around the world. I'm sure there's some good research about why teenagers in particular start, you know, get getting interested in their own, status. I I definitely agree. I think it's when you become aware that there's certain behaviors that are arbitrary that suddenly, you know, that's cool and that's not cool. But, you know, a year ago, that was cool. Or the word poser was a really big put down when I was in middle school. So, you know, there's a lot of people wearing a certain brand or, you know, wearing a skate brand or, or a surf brand and then suddenly somebody else is wearing it, but they're a poser. And it's like, well, they're wearing the same thing, but it's like, well, they're wrong and you're right. So you start getting all those concepts in middle school and it goes on to high school. And I think high school is usually when people say, um, you know, that's really where you first understand status hierarchies. To, to bridge to something that I think about quite a bit is these the, the principles that I lay out in the book around how status works and <clears throat> how it connects to culture and, and our cultural behavior and taste and identity and all these things. I, I think if, you know, some people may learn them over time from certain fields, but a lot of these lessons are in the margins of certain academic fields. And you certainly don't get to them until you get to college. And then in college, you have to pick the right major and then maybe you know i didn't get to most of them until grad school to be honest so in grad school you start reading veblen and bordeaux and and all of this and then you you know i had to really spend years reading different books to figure out where this information even existed because there's not a field of status studies and cultural studies tends to be more on kind of uh, literary theory side but it doesn't really deal with the social dynamics as much as as i would have liked and so I had to find the part of sociology and social psychology that this research was going on. But I think about all the time, we should teach people, especially kids, these lessons earlier for them to understand it because it affects all of our lives. But we won't. And the reason we won't is because ultimately, if you start understanding how arbitrary these worlds are and you understand how status dynamics work, then it kind of pulls pulls the curtain back and you start then deconstructing everything. And it's really difficult to indoctrinate children. I mean, that's a very strong term, but it's very hard to teach kids anything once you start being like, okay, but also it can all be deconstructed because obviously it's a social construct. And so there's a reason we don't teach anybody this until they get old enough is because then you 
you know, you go into chemistry class and you're like, well, isn't this, I mean, didn't Thomas Kuhn basically say that this is all paradigm and, you know, or yes, I guess we're in the atom paradigm, but it could be totally different. And this is, aren't atoms just metaphors really? So, you know, the, there's, I think a reason we don't teach these things because they, they are super destructive to social cohesion in a sense, but they're also massively empowering at an individual level because, these things work on voodoo and they work on ignorance. And, you know, especially when it comes to bias and racism and all these things, they get baked into social conventions that we just accept as the normal order of the world. And what's really key is to show that they come from somewhere, that, that somebody made this decision or these values really benefit one group over the others. And we don't have to have it. It's arbitrary. We can have a different social norm. We don't have to live like this. So that's you know where political act- activism comes from and, and where social change comes from. And so, yeah, you do pick these things up. But I think we're weary of teaching high school kids these lessons, and there's really no infrastructure to do so. But I, I've thought about it a lot, is how do you make a version of this book that you make every high schooler read? Um, and, you know... I don't know what effect it would have on, you know, a bunch of jocks and nerds. I don't know if that's the way this world still works, but, you know, <laughs> would, would the cool kids be like, oh God, we're, we're, we're being horribly oppressive in our status and we've got to be yeah. nicer to everybody. Probably not. Or, you know, would the, would people at the bottom rise up? I mean, I certainly think if you look at the language of incels, the incels have this really, dark fantasy of status. And I think Jordan Peterson also is somebody who has really kind of pushed this kind of dark hierarchy idea onto people. And like the idea of incels of like, everything's this number ranking and there's these chads who are above you, like stealing everything from you. I mean, so that is, that's very dark status thinking. And I think what's, what's important to me is not to talk about status as, you know, we're doomed but simply to understand how it works because you can change it. And we have changed it over time as a civilization. We're not, we're not, I, that, that's my problem with the evolutionary psychology reading of all this is that it more or less says, Hey, we're, we all have status the same way that gorillas have dominance hierarchies and Hey, that's, that's just the way life is, but it's not, I mean, we, the, we're not describing dominance hierarchies. We're describing what we think should be, given esteem because of the contribution to society. And that changes over time. And who we give esteem to changes over time. And we do have power to control that. It made me think about uh, Casino Royale, the James Bond movie, Casino Royale. I've only seen the newer, the new-ish version, which is like 15 years old or something like now. Yeah. Um, but you had the uh, the like warlord drug slash weapons are or whatever, who was taking clients' money and then going to play poker with it and so if you if you take a like a similar result it's like the returns were not coming from the weapons in this case weapons equals real estate the returns was coming from and playing poker right but if you just looked at the prospectus it would be like oh people put in one billion dollars and those people got out three billion dollars whatever and that's that's it's an exact analogy you can't even critique there's no holes in this analogy You better go to your fishbowl before I start to critique that. <laughs> All right. The last thing in my fishbowl, as promised, uh, last major thing, might hit on something else, as promised, is about inverted thinking. This is from James Clear's blog. James Clear wrote the book Atomic Habits, maybe other stuff, but that's the book I've read 
which I recommend. Short, helpful book, in my opinion, anyway. So Inversion, the crucial thinking skill nobody ever taught you is the title of this blog post. And what it's about is thinking about the exact opposite of what you believe slash what could go wrong and then plan out that scenario and using that to then come up with your strategy. So the questions raised in here are, what would things look like if everything went wrong tomorrow? And what does this tell us about how we should prepare today? There's several examples in here of um, either groups or people, right, that did this. And I think it's real, real powerful. So it talks about a German mathematician named Carl Jacobi, who believed that one of the best ways to clarify thinking was to restate math problems in an inverse form. So he'd write down the opposite of the problem and then try and solve it and found that coming up with a solution based on that was helpful. Talked about Nirvana creating a music genre by doing like exactly the opposite of what uh, of what was popular that day. Uh, Mr. Charlie Munger, who we talk about a bunch of Berkshire Hathaway fame. And Charlie says, what do you want to avoid? Such an easy answer. Sloth and unreliability. If you're unreliable, it doesn't matter what your virtues are. You're going to crater immediately. Doing what you have faithfully engaged to do should be an automatic part of your conduct. You want to avoid sloth and unreliability. Uh, and I really like this point. It says, in most jobs, you can enjoy some degree of success simply by being proactive and reliable, even if you are not particularly smart, fast, or talented in any given area. So the point of all this is saying that if you if you're working on whatever it might be, whatever goal you kind of set, right? And you fast forward a few months or to the end of the project and you say, if this thing doesn't work and then start to play out all the things that happen, it can be a really helpful way for you to figure out like what went wrong, what mistakes happened, and then start to just, um, instead of trying to push for ultimate success, just try and prevent those things from going wrong. And that's like, I'm making up this number. This wasn't in the piece, like 98% of the game can be yeah. just doing that over and over again and not hitting the death line and not hitting that failure line. All right. I shall pause. No, this is good stuff. I, uh, I wrote a blog post about this a while back, so I was pulling it up. So the funniest thing that Munger ever says is tell me the place I'm going to die. So I won't go there. I mean, yep. Right. Yep. But it, if we attempt to leverage inversion thinking, I won't spend too much time on this, but to investing, like, what would you do to be a bad investor? Okay. I think you'd uh, pay high fees and commissions. You'd buy expensive or speculative assets, AKA crypto and other. You'd trade frequently. You'd use leverage and you'd make emotional decisions. Am I missing anything, Douglas? You do those five things. I can guarantee you're a poor investor. In, in concentrated big bet fashion. Yeah. You want to do that? It's you want to take small bets with any of those five things. Well, I'm, I'm saying, read them again. No, no, no. I'm <laughs> saying, you know how uh, you were talking about who was it? Was it a uh, Druckenmiller? Maybe that was saying yeah. like crypto should never be any more than two percent of your portfolio. I think there's a difference between something that you make like as like a half a percent of your portfolio and like a leverage oh, way okay. versus that's like, fair. That, that that's what I'm saying. But I, I don't want to I don't want to take away from the big point. Yes, I'll just yeah. Agree. Right. So if you do those things, you're gonna lose your shirt. So do the opposite of those things. What would that be? Don't pay high fees and commissions. Don't buy speculative assets. Don't trade frequently. Don't use leverage. And don't make emotional decisions. You and I both uh, try and limit our emotional decisions with quantitative models that help us 
determine what is in our sweet spot to potentially buy. Like it's that simple. I won't talk any more about that piece, but it's a really powerful tool. I love that you're bringing it up because you can apply it to almost anything. Like, I don't know how to make my son a better soccer player. And I think there's value there. So um, great stuff. Yeah, it's super valuable. I think that, like, yeah, it, it translates into so many different things, like athletics, like you were saying, uh, with or just general health. Of like, what what are the things that I know would contribute to poor health, right? Like not exercising, eating poorly. Like, there's all this stuff to do, and you just go. It doesn't mean you have to do the full opposite, but at least limit, right? Um, some of those things that you know. I think I think it's like it's. It's such a powerful way to do things. Um, and stepping back to investing for a second, let's think back to last year. We've talked a lot about Tal Education Group, right? Last year yeah. in my portfolio. I was down like 90-something percent over the course of the year. Not great for the portfolio. Um, there was a point, though, if you go to the early part of the year, I'm, I'm just doing this off the cuff, so my numbers are going to be directional but not correct. Early part of the year, Tal was like, blazing i remember there was one day it was up like 15 percent or something like that like early 2021 mm -hmm. and during those moments when you see assets like that in your portfolio it's easy to go man i should have put more in like what if that were like half my portfolio right but if you start playing out what could go wrong and i'm not saying any of this would happen but hypothetically the government of china decides that education like <laughs> companies can no longer make a profit hypothetically right U.S.-China relations start to take a downward spiral, hypothetically. Uh, there's like audit risk potential in China, hypothetically, right? You take all that stuff, and the next thing you know, that stock is down 90-something percent. Now imagine what had happened if that was half your portfolio or if that was a big concentrated bet, right? And that that's what's so important is that it's like a, it's avoiding that place where you have nothing, right? And people get into this with, we talk about, option trading and leverage, which you were just talking about. Again, people get into this stuff because you have potentially people that are that are rolling the dice there have these days. Like I made 40 grand in a day. I made $100,000 in a day. I made $10,000 in a day, whatever it is, or it's worth zero. And you yeah, have and to then avoid you lost it all. Exactly. Yeah. You have to avoid the zero it's or the else you're out of the game. game. I mean, like, yeah, it's that stuff's not investing. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed it. And as always, our one-stop shop is skippydoogles.com. And please send us listener mail, skippydoogles at gmail.com. Here's to a great 2023.